Hello and welcome to SPA Highlights from ULAR 2021. We'll be presenting some expert selected abstracts from ULAR 2021 and giving you some commentaries and insights into the abstracts that we found most interesting this year. This presentation is sponsored by Novartis Medical Affairs, who have focused the topic area around axial manifestations of spondyloarthritis, but we chose the abstracts without any influence from Novartis and we'll be presenting our views on the importance of these abstracts in the presentation. So my name's Laura Coates. I'm an associate professor from the University of Oxford with a particular interest in psoriatic arthritis and other spondyloarthritis. And these are my disclosures shown here. And it's my pleasure to be joined today by Alexis, Hi, my name is Alexis Ogdi. I'm Associate Professor of Medicine and Epidemiology at the University of Pennsylvania. Um, I'm a rheumatologist and epidemiologist also with a focus in psoriatic arthritis and also spinal arthritis more broadly. And these are my disclosures. All right, so I'm gonna kick us off with the first abstract. So the first abstract we were interested in uh, kind of reporting on is a, a comparison of axial PSA and AXPA. So in clinical practice all the time and within trials, people wonder, all the, are these conditions the same? Are they different? Uh, so in order to kind of address this from a top-down perspective, we examine differences in time to onset, diagnosis, as well as symptoms and um, treatment in order to better understand whether or not these conditions were similar and different and how. So first of all, you can see just across the top line of bars, the bars look relatively similar. Here, the yellow is axial PSA and blue is AXPA. And so you can see time to symptom onset and time to diagnosis are actually relatively similar among the two groups. You can also see that symptoms in the right upper hand corner here are very similar among the two groups as well, including pain, spine pain, fatigue, and overall work impairment. Where we start to see some differences is in some of the uh, di different manifestations. So HLA-B27 is significantly higher in patients with AXPA compared to AXIO-PSA. Additionally, uveitis and inflammatory bowel disease are also more common in AXPA compared to AXIO-PSA. On the other hand, patients with AXIO-PSA have received more CSDMARs than AXPA patients and have actually had more prior biologic therapies as well. So Laura, what are your thoughts about this abstract, but also differences and similarities between AXPSA and AXPA? Yeah, so I think this is an area there's been a lot of research on in the last couple of years as we really try to get to grips with what axial PSA is, um, how to define it and, and how to treat it. And as you say, how much of a difference there is between these two conditions, we know that it's quite a gray area that a lot of people overlap and meet both criteria. Um, but we also know from some studies that are, there do seem to be some differences. Um, so I think you can see very nicely that similar level of impact of disease in terms of symptoms. So I think there's a clear unmet need for both of these conditions in terms of controlling symptoms better. And I guess most of the differences that are highlighted here make sense to me clinically. I would have predicted the difference in B27, also in uveitis and IBD, which we do much more commonly see in AXPA patients. And the prior conventional DMODs make sense because obviously the minority of people with AXPA will have an indication for a conventional DMOD uh, with them not working for spinal disease. 
I guess I was a little bit surprised about the prior biologic use. So that's also higher in the PSA patients. And while these drugs are very good for both conditions, I would have perhaps expected it to be higher for the AXPAR patients because these patients don't have any other treatment options. They can't respond to conventional drugs. And so if they're, if they're struggling with significant symptoms, despite NSAIDs, then I would have expected them to go on to biologics quicker and I guess more broadly in terms of the population. Yeah, and I wonder if that's because some of these patients have psoriasis and uh, psoriasis is so commonly treated with biologics these days by dermatologists, at least in the United States where this study was conducted, um, and, and particularly among moderate to severe psoriasis. So I wonder how much was uh, kind of driven by that. Uh, this data looks at diagnostic delay in axial spondyloarthritis, something we've known has been a problem for quite a long time. And this is data taken from the National Earlier Inflammatory Arthritis Audit in the UK. So this is a nationwide mandatory audit of rheumatology practice in the UK. So it's collecting data very widely. It should be very representative of those being referred in with early inflammatory arthritis. And this was uh, performed originally back in 2015, focused much more on rheumatoid arthritis. And when the audit was repeated in 2019, there were a number of additional questions that were added to try and pick up AXPAR. So the old version in 2015 asked a lot about rheumatoid factor and CCP. Uh, the new updated audit now includes questions on B27, MRI, and x-rays of sacroiliac joints to try and get a bit more data on the diagnostic delay and the treatment that's initiated for patients with AXPAR in the UK. And you can see here split by men and women, although actually a similar pattern for both, that the patients with rheumatoid arthritis are typically being identified within one to three months of symptom onset, whereas the patients with AXPAR is between one and five years of symptom onset. So really a lot longer delay in the AXPAR patients than we're seeing with peripheral arthritis. It's really helpful to have this comparison. Um, I think one of the things that is kind of intuitive is that rheumatoid arthritis is somewhat easier to pick up. If the primary care doctor sees joint swelling, they're gonna know to refer to a rheumatologist. Back pain is so common and so hard to differentiate sometimes between mechanical back pain and inflammatory back pain that it's just a lot harder even for rheumatologists, let alone primary care physicians. So may suggest that more education is needed in this area. And I suspect there's a delay before they even get to primary care as well. Typically, our rheumatoid patients have a bit more of an explosive onset of symptoms and really notice the difference. And as you say, see that joint swelling. Whereas if you've got kind of an insidious creeping back pain, um, even if it is inflammatory in nature, an awful lot of people will ignore it for quite a long time before they're seeking help. Um, so I think there's, there's clear evidence of that delay in AXPAR here. Um, and it may actually even be underestimated here as well. So this audit particularly focuses on early inflammatory arthritis clinics. Um, and typically a lot of our AXPAR patients don't come through that clinical route and may well be missed for the audit. If you're coming through physiotherapists um, or various community referral hubs, um, 
varying service services for musculoskeletal pain, even spinal surgeons, uh, there's going to be a lot of patients going a much more circuitous route who may not be included in this audit. So this is, if anything, probably an underestimate of the problem, I think. And it sounded like from one of the pair abstract sessions that there was um, a new program that's being developed as kind of a multi-pronged approach to trying to capture these patients. Um, do you know much more about that? Yeah, so this is run by NAS, which is the National Axial Spondyloarthritis Society, and that's the main patient group in the UK for patients with axial spar. And they've done a lot of work over the last couple of years collecting data, looking at where the problems lie. They've been doing some lobbying and trying to develop a kind of multi-pronged approach, as you say, to try and support patients get the right help to support education all the way through that process. And I think we've seen in a lot of countries, a lot of positive interventions trying to do that um, to get the word out there and to educate patients or members of the public before they even patients uh, and the primary care physicians so that the right patients get through to the rheumatologist for assessment. All right, so to build on that last abstract, there was also another study of diagnostic delay in AXPA presented at ULAR this year. This one was from uh, Israel. So in Israel, they took a look at what was the time from symptom onset to diagnosis, and they wanted to see if this had changed over the last three decades. And so what you can see here is actually that it has significantly improved over the last three decades in Israel. And what they found was the best predictor of improved time to diagnosis was time from onset of symptoms to rheumatologist consultation. So getting those patients into the rheumatologist was kind of the critical first step uh, in the recognition of getting a diagnosis or the recognition of the disease and then moving toward getting a diagnosis. So obviously no comparator here, which is one of the nice things about the last abstract, but it does suggest that maybe it is better than it has been in the past, at least in Israel. Yeah, so I think we are moving forward and there's been a lot of education, hasn't there, which has really helped, but it's still getting the word out to patients that they need to present to primary care physicians with inflammatory kind of back pain. And then it's, it's, I think, really, really hard for our primary care physicians to pick up which of the many back pain patients they see uh, are going to be an inflammatory back pain and an AXPA patient and putting in different educational messages and supportive tools to try and help people identify those patients is going to be key so that we can get patients diagnosed quickly and, and hopefully onto treatment and feeling better. Yeah, so this is actually two abstracts combined, but um, you'll, you'll notice have very similar um, cohort involved and very similar analysis. So this is data from GESPIC, which is the German uh, AXPAR cohort, and looking at the effect of TNF inhibitors on radiographic progression. And I think this has been something that we've looked at a lot over the last five to 10 years thinking about whether treating inflammation in AXPAR can impact on radiographic progression in a similar way to in, to in peripheral arthritis, rheumatoid and, and PSA. And there's always been this disconnect seen in the AXPAR studies that in relatively short-term studies, we don't obviously see a difference. And so this data looked in GESPIC at a large number of patients with axial spondyloarthritis. And on the left, you can see the sacroiliitis. And on the right, you can see the spine scores. Uh, so looking at the two different aspects of those x-rays. And what they showed really is that the patients who'd recently been treated with anti-TNF, 
it didn't make any difference. So if you'd been on TNF um, just in the 12 months prior to these two year intervals where the x-rays were scored, there was no difference. But if you'd had the TNF before that in the previous two year interval, then in that two years later, you then saw a, a decrease in radiographic progression. And on the left in the sacroiliac joints, I think that's completely novel. We've not seen that before. On the right in the spine, we've seen some suggestion of this from other studies that it really needs a lot of time to be able to pick up that impact on radiographic progression in AXPAR. In some ways, this kind of solidifies the fact that it's really hard to study disease modification in AXPAR. And, you know, in the, in the trials, which have a 12 or 16 week placebo period, you really just can't see that. And so I think it's good to know that and have this data to kind of further confirm that that's just not going to work. Um, but it makes it tricky to figure out how you do study that for these other MOAs besides, besides TNF, where you have lots of patients in the past who had long, long-term follow-up. Yeah, I think it's going to be putting together two different types of evidence, isn't it? So in short-term studies, we can look at whether inflammation gets controlled on MRI, and some of the 12- and 16-week studies have shown that quite nicely. Um, what we now need to do is look at, in, in registries like this and in longer-term observational studies, to tie up where that change comes in the radiographic progression, how long that takes um, to become evident. And I guess it's linking those two things together in clinicians' minds that there may be that longer-term benefit, even if we don't see it in the early studies. One of the questions that comes up a lot in clinical practice is, can we taper your TNF inhibitor? How, how should we go about doing that? So this was an interesting clinical trial in which they randomized about almost 400 patients to either continuing on their TNF inhibitor or tapering among patients who were in low disease activity over six months. So they had to be on a TNF inhibitor and has have at least two BAS dyes less than four over that six months in order to be kind of entered into this potential phase. And then they were randomized. Um, and really what they found is that the people who continued had about 91% were in low disease activity at 12 months as opposed to those who spaced about 88% were in uh, low disease activity at 12 months. So actually these spaced out people did pretty well for the most part. Um, they did this couple caveats. This was not an intention to treat analysis. It was a as is treatment. So there were about nine people who dropped out of that spaced out cohort. Um, but overall, I think this is some nice positive evidence that you can, in some of these people who have been in low disease activity for a while, space out the TNF inhibitor as a me method for kind of getting to a point where you might even come off. Yeah, and I think it's something our patients ask us a lot if they are well controlled, they want to see if they can manage with less medication. Even going on to medication, a lot of people are saying, well, how long do I have to take it for? You know, when will I be able to stop this? And so it, it's really difficult. And a lot of the studies we've had so far have been observational without a comparator group. And that's so difficult then to draw conclusions. So I, I love the randomized design here. Um, there's obviously a lot more questions hidden within this and, and there wasn't a lot of detail in the presentation. So the space group... Uh, kind of went step by step. So they spaced out a little bit. If they remained well, they spaced a little bit further. 
if they remained well, they spaced again. And we don't have any data as to how much on average people managed to space out their drug. We know that they all tried and they managed to some extent, but we don't exactly know how much. And the other question is obviously we're looking at low disease activity here, which is a great outcome but it's not clear whether there's any variation between these two groups in terms of absolute score. Are the BASDIs similar? Are the enthesitis scores similar? Um, they're, they're reasonably comparable at the low disease activity, but it would be interesting to think about kind of remission, inactive disease cutoffs, and other elements of the disease that may be impacted by spacing out medication as well. Exactly, so lots to still learn in this space So then finally, we're going to move on to talk about the GRAPA treatment recommendations that were presented at ULA this year. Um, so the Group for Research and Assessment of Psoriasis and Psoriatic Arthritis has presented now three versions of the treatment recommendations with regular updates. And the last version was published back in 2015. And so it was clear that an update was needed. And this has been underway despite pressures with COVID uh, over 2020 uh, with presentation at ULA this year. So I, I think you can uh, get an idea from this schema that really the overall approach has been very similar to that in 2015. So we've kept the six key domains of psoriatic arthritis and a very domain-based approach to these treatment recommendations to try and make them practical for a disease where patients typically present with multiple domain involvement and where that may really help to differentiate different medications. So you can see here the kind of flow chart for treatment for the six different key domains of disease. And then at the bottom, I guess the key difference here is us including related conditions. So inflammatory bowel disease and uveitis in that main treatment schema. And they've been separated away from the comorbidities where they sat back in 2015, because obviously we're using the same drugs, uh, often with similar levels of evidence and license uh, when we're considering therapies. So it's almost considering those related, related conditions as an extra domain that we want to consider there. And you can see here on the left and on the right-hand side in the dark blue boxes, we're still trying to bring this together to an individual patient. So thinking about assessing these different domains for any individual in front of you, working out which domains are involved, which treatments would work for those domains, and trying to pick a drug that will address as many domains as possible in one therapy, whilst taking into account any comorbidities and any patient preference as well. I think among treatment guidelines, I find the GRAPA setup, you know, this domain-based approach to be kind of the most intuitive and easy to follow. But also, I think it just makes sense. It helps clinicians say, this is what's important to assess. And then once you've assessed these things, then pick the therapy that works best for all of those different domains. I think it's very logical and easy to follow from that perspective. So what's changed really since the 2015 recommendations? Maybe you can go through some differences from 2015. 
Yeah, so I think we've got a combination really in the update of new drugs that we didn't have available back in 2015 and a little bit of new data on old drugs, um, which has caused minor changes in the recommendations. So I think the big thing, if we think back to the 2015 recommendations, we only had a kind of limited evidence, even on aisle 17, it was an abstract only form at the time. So they were included in the recommendations, but with a note that we didn't have full papers um, to justify their use. And obviously we now have you know, license for, for multiple aisle 17 inhibitors and many, many papers supporting their use. Um, we've also seen the addition of JAK inhibitors uh, and of IL-23 inhibitors, particularly in these latest updates. Uh, and looking across the different domains, you can see the same drugs coming up again and again, I think. Um, but uh, you get some evidence there on which ones are helpful in which domains. I think we've had additional data in the axial domain around existing therapies. So we've, we've got um, obviously evidence for TNF and IL-17. We've got new evidence for JAK inhibitors, so they're now starting to be included where they weren't considered before. And we've got increasing evidence that this time negative evidence from AS trials with IL-1223, which was conditionally included based on very small observational studies before, and IL-23 inhibitors, which, which just weren't really in the space back in 2015. So I think there are a lot of the big changes. We've seen a bit of increasing evidence in the related conditions as well. So licenses in ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease for some more of the medications that we use day to day. Having been involved in the previous set and this set, I think it's really exciting that we have enough data now to talk about strong and conditional recommendations. In 2015, we just didn't have that data. And even now, we still need more data to kind of really make you know, better conclusions, but at the same time, it's nice that we're able to kind of parse these things out a little bit better. Yeah, so using that grade approach helps you to give the strong and the conditional recommendations. Um, it can still cause some debate. Um, so there are definitely great areas as to how strong evidence is in some situations, particularly, I think, in the related conditions where you may have license and approval in that particular condition. But generally, there are not studies looking at people with psoriatic arthritis and uveitis, for example, in terms of any large treatment trials. So there's a little bit of debate about exactly whether things are strong and conditional. But we've also had a couple of really useful, more strategy related trials, I guess. So the SEAM study, which looked at methotrexate versus TNF, the control study, which was similar, although a slightly different premise, which has helped us to collect some data on old drugs as well. So we've got slightly more evidence, albeit not strong quality evidence, but a little bit more evidence around the conventional DMARDs and the impacts they may have beyond just the arthritis domain. Great. Well, thanks so much, Laura. It's been great talking to you through these abstracts and fun spending time with you today. Thanks to all of our listeners for joining in.